0: Once again, blessed Lord's Day to you all, familia, because I am Mexican, I will say familia. Um, I'm going to do things a little bit different today, so just hold on to your Bibles. Um, I'll get to the scripture in a bit. Um, again, I just want to say how encouraging it is to be in the house of the Lord with the saints this morning here in the city of Ontario. You know, as a church planter, does everybody know what a church planter is? Amen? Show of hands, does everybody know what a church planter is? For those of you that didn't raise your hand, a church planter is somebody who starts a church from scratch, from like nothing. It's like, think of a plant. You're planting a seed, watering it, nourishing it, giving it sunlight, giving it love so that it will grow and and prosper. And ultimately, that is what we're doing, planting a confessionally reformed gospel-preaching church, and we're doing it in the hood. Linwood, Compton, and Watts, just so you guys know where we're at. Uh, As a church planter, folks have often asked us, What curriculum do you use? I see your church growing, like, what do you use to draw folks in? And I've never really understood that question, you know? Uh, At one of our recent men's groups, I looked around and saw so many young Latino, black, Samoan, and Asian men who were just hungry. I'm not talking about cheeseburgers or carne asada. These guys were hungry for the Lord Jesus, and they were willing to do the hard work of digging into his Word. I look back and I witness them falling deeper and deeper in love with the Lord. So when folks literally from all over ask, what type of curriculum are you using? I tell them, "Um, the Bible and our reformed confessions and creeds. That's all we're using. We've got no gimmicks. We've got no fog machines. We've got no fancy lights. We have no concert-style worship, we got the Word of God and a people who were hungry for it. That was a great place to say amen, by the way. And, And as I help, as I help shepherd these men and their families as their pastor, it's a true joy to know their stories, to know the things that they have dealt with, the things they are currently dealing with, and ultimately know that the Word of God is the only thing that can bring us comfort. Are y'all familiar with an old historic catechism by the name of Heidelberg? Yeah, all of us, right? A lot of you guys are Dutch, right? No? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm Mexican Dutch. You guys can just call me Vander Rubio, okay? <laughs> or or Rubiosma, all right? Um, but, but we have a deep appreciation of the Heidelberg Catechism. And um, I think of, of question, Lord's Day one question well, what is our only hope in life and in death? That we are not our own, but we long. And life and death to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ that is the hope that we have Uh, you know we've got no gimmicks and because us as Christians as followers of Jesus when we talk about people struggling with things we all know how the story ends right every single one of us knows the ending to the story and because of that we should be grieved like we should be legit genuinely grieved that the world is so lost as the world strays further and further from the word of God, we see the depravity of humanity on full display. The other day I was sent a video of a well-known politician, I'm not gonna talk about politics, but there was a video of a well-known politician who was quoting scripture to fit their specific need. But these politicians forget about scripture when it comes to things like abortion. These same politicians forget about scripture when it says that there are only two genders and that God made them, it's not multiple choice. Friends, because we know how the story ends, it should burden us to help make others aware too. Are you with me? It should be heavy on our hearts knowing that there are so many people out there who are just lost. Like like really and truly, genuinely lost. I made a comment recently as I was presiding over the Lord's Supper at my church how people don't take hell seriously. One of my friends recently said that people like to air-condition hell and take the severity of what it is away by air-conditioning it. It's like nowadays, the only thing somebody has to do to go to hell is just die. Like, that's it, you just die, I'm sorry, to go to heaven, all you got to do is just die and, and you go to heaven. Like, I'm not kidding. For so many people nowadays, that's it, you just have to die and you get a free pass into heaven, automatically. No repentance of sin, no, no faith in Jesus, no, no godly living, Nothing. Just die. What's even more sad is that the families of some of these people, they really believe that their loved ones are in heaven. I often see social media posts about people saying how they now have an angel watching over them. I'm like, no you don't. Because the Bible tells me that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And I knew this individual. And unless they had an encounter with Christ at their deathbed, I can promise you they are not in heaven. For some of us, as we look at things, we can see how, um, and and I, and I hope you're tracking with me, how um, people don't really care for heaven or hell. They they've made the devil into a caricature with horns and a and a and a and a, and a pitchfork, you know, um, but that's not the way it works. One isn't saved by just professing faith in Jesus. Okay. I want to make sure you're hearing me clearly. We are not saved by a profession in Jesus. We're saved by a possession of faith in Jesus. There's a difference. And as we prepare to get into today's text, I want to set it up for us. We're going to be in Matthew uh, 25 this morning, but I want to give you some context as we get there. A few chapters before in Matthew 22, we heard about the parable of the wedding feast. Are you familiar with that parable? Jesus said, For many are, are, are called, but few are chosen. The following chapter in Matthew 23, Jesus confronts the scribes and Pharisees with the seven woes and calls them hypocrites and and even serpents. In Matthew 24, Jesus clearly told his disciples that concerning the coming of the Son of Man, no one knows the day and hour. And today in Matthew 25, again we will see Jesus makes a challenge to his people to stay alert because nobody knows the day or the hour. Amen? Are you all at Matthew 25? Can I ask you once again to please stand with me if you're able to embody your spirit for the reading of God's word? And friends, the word of God reads as follows. In Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. You know neither the day nor the hour. People of God, this is the word of God. Please be seated, friends, in the presence of the Lord. Now, my big idea, what I want to teach this morning is this. If you don't prepare for success, you're automatically preparing for failure. Now, this isn't some prosperity message. I'm not talking about finances. I'm not talking about your career. I'm not talking about your marriage. I'm not talking about your housing project. What I'm talking about is our faith and our walk with Christ the Lord. Amen? If you don't prepare for success, you're automatically preparing for failure. Now, that may very well apply to other aspects of life, but that's not what I'm talking about today. And here's how I want to prove this today. Please be patient. There's method to what may seem madness to some of you. I got four points that I want to share with you this morning, and in verses one through four, we'll see that there are two churches like a bag of mixed nuts. In verses five through six, we'll see any guys know who Gomer Powell is? Surprise, surprise, surprise. Verses seven through nine, it's gonna to be too little, too late. And verses ten through thirteen, we're gonna see about the final payoff. Let me get into two churches and mixed nuts in verses one through four. Let me read that again. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Now, I'm sure many of you are aware of the concept of there being two churches, okay? And if you haven't heard that, I hope to be able to explain a little bit that this morning. But hopefully it's just a reminder for most of you. Here it goes. There is a visible church, and that's all those people who go to church, those people who profess faith in Jesus, but don't really have a possession of faith. They profess from their mouth, but Christ is not really in their hearts. In Spanish, we have a saying that goes like this, caras vemos, corazones no sabemos. Translated, it says, faces we see, but hearts we do not know. In other words, we can't always trust what we see on the outside. We can't be led astray by appearances. You know, some of the people that I've seen put up a facade and utter holiness, of utter holiness. These people are like the super apostles. They're like the, the, the they're Christians on steroids. Some of those people are those that have been steeped in the most wicked of sin. At my church, I have dealt with folks who profess to love Jesus. They know theology inside and out. They know all the boxes to check off for the proper doctrine. And then they got caught by their spouse on being on sexual dating, dating websites. Now, you'd think that those people would want to address the sin and work it out, Right? But no, instead, what do they do? They went from our church to another church and they deceive people by trying to start all over again and again, put on this facade of being super Christians. Friends, on the outside, it would appear that all those in the church have the same goal. If you're outside looking in, it would seem to be that everybody within the church all has the same goal. It would appear that we're all on the same page expecting the same outcome but unfortunately not all put in the work when i say put in the work i want to be clear i am not talking about a works-based salvation okay that's not what i'm talking about but instead as a response to our salvation we don't work to get saved but because we have been saved we work to give god glory praise out of gratitude for having saved us now we can look to the ten virgins or the bridesmaids, however you want to word it, who were waiting for the bridegroom that we just read about, although there were 10 that were there for the very same reason, the Lord Jesus himself tells us that five were foolish and five were wise. Now, how are we to discern the difference between the wise and the fools? The Lord Jesus was clear that the bridesmaids were prepared, they put in the work and they took oil with them for their lamps, and that was wise. And those who didn't were fools. They did not put in the work. They did not prepare. What does this have to do with the church? Somebody asked me. I'm so glad that you asked. (laughs) The wise and the fools can be related to the invisible and to the visible church that I talked about. In the same way that there are folks in the church who are on the same mission, profess the same faith in Christ... They talk the talk, but inside they are not walking the walk. Although they might profess a faith in Christ, they don't truly possess a faith in Christ in their hearts. Like the virgins who were all on the same mission, half of them were suited and booted, ready to go, while the other half weren't. They were more focused on the things, on other things instead of being prepared. Now, there are are many professing Christians that fall into the same patterns, Many folks profess to be followers of Jesus, and they they talk the talk, but not all are prepared for his arrival. They want the blessings from God, but aren't willing to bless God. They want the benefits of Christ on the cross without having to die to themselves or carry their own cross. Christ didn't call us to comfort, friends. I see that nowhere in the Bible, unless you're reading the book of Second Opinions, chapter 2, verse 13. And that was a joke, by the way. There is no book of second opinions or first opinions, okay? Christ didn't call us to comfort, friends. He called us to die to ourselves, to die to our desires, to die to our flesh, that his death on the cross would be applied to what we owe to God for our sins committed against him. I like to say holy crimes because sometimes people can, can water down what, what, the, what the word sin means and We just missed the mark. No, bro, you committed a crime against the holy God is what you did. And because of that, we must be held accountable. And that's why the cross, putting that into perspective, changes everything, friends. It changes everything. But not everybody is trying to hear that. There is no crown without the cross. In the parable of the wheat and tares, it teaches us how a man sowed good seed in his field. But while his workers were sleepy, not doing what they were supposed to, The enemy came and sowed uh, seeds among the wheat of tares. Now, they both look the same, but one is good while the other is bad. The workers asked if they should pull up all the weeds, right? And listen to what the Lord Jesus responded in this parable. He said, no. Like, Like, don't pull them all out. Lest, in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together. Until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. In the same way the good wheat and the bad weeds or tares grow together and look the same, so it is within the church. In which you have people who look and talk like they're true believers, but they're not. In the end, they will be a part of the bundles of weeds that Christ said to gather up and set them apart to be burned. Now, this isn't a message of hope, right? We're like, oh my gosh, like, this is a, a staunch reminder that, that being separated from Christ eternally or under his wrath is a very real thing, friends. And the Lord says that we must be prepared for his arrival. And that draws me to verses 5 through 6. In Gomer Powell's voice, surprise, surprise, surprise. As the bridegroom was delayed, it says that they all became drowsy and slept. All the virgins became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. When did the groom arrive? In the middle of the night. In the middle of the night when it was least expected. When folks had gotten comfortable, when folks weren't really concerned with whether or not he'd be arriving this late. Because if they had, things would have been different in the previous chapter uh, the lord jesus said if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming he would have stayed awake and would not have let him break into his home therefore you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect friends the people of god must be ready we must be like those firemen who are just ready for the alarm to go off. we can just slide down the pole with all of our gear on ready to go. I need a bigger hole, but we got to be ready to go as firemen, all right? We need to be ready. Yet it would seem that when Jesus needed his people to be the most ready, they always let him down. They always let him down. Not much later in the same gospel, we can read about what happened on the night when Jesus was betrayed. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane at night praying so intensely that his sweat was like drops of blood. And he asked his disciples to do one thing. They had one job. Keep watch. Stay awake and keep watch. And yet every time he came back, they were asleep. He tells them to keep watch as he goes away to pray three times and he comes back and finds them asleep. They didn't do what was asked of them. And friends, in like fashion, these virgins could not do what was expected of them, to be ready for when the groom showed up. In the days of Noah, when folks were were too busy eating, drinking, and being married, they were more concerned with their own desires than they were in preparing for the Lord. And for those that think, ah, you know what, I'm just going to, do me, and when I'm ready to die, then I'm going to get right with God. In verses 7-9, through nine, we'll see it's too little, too late. It says, Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, rather go with the dealers and buy for yourselves. Friends, Christ might delay. But make no mistake, friends, when he comes to judge, it will be sudden and irreversible. Christ might delay, but when he returns, it will be sudden and irreversible. And here we see the Lord Jesus reinforcing this. His return will be when no one expects it, and it will be irreversible. So that means that when when Christ returns or when he calls us home, to be a Christian means that we will be found in our faith and not in our sins. Think about that. When Christ returns, we must be found in our faith and not in our sins. And that doesn't mean you made a small sin or something and you're like, oh my gosh, I lost my salvation. No. We're in the palm of his hand and nobody can remove us from there. But where do you want to be found when Christ returns doing what? It means, friends, also that when he returns or takes us home, there is nothing. And let me repeat that. There is nothing that can be done after that to change things. What do I mean specifically? Well, I'll tell you. In my Mexican culture, we have this concept, right, erroneous, that when one of our loved one dies, we host a novenario. A novenario means nine days of prayer. And during this novenario, or nine days of prayer, the rosary is prayed repetitiously with the expectation of the deceased soul being prayed out of purgatory and into heaven. First, there is no such thing as purgatory. Two, there is nothing anyone can do for us after we've died. Three, the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? Christ will return suddenly and it will be irreversible, friends. So when he comes back and finds those in the church lollygagging, y'all know that word, lollygagging? Guess what? It's a wrap, it's over. It's over. It will be too late, and nothing can be done to change the outcome. I cannot stress this enough. The Lord Jesus addresses this over and over and over because he's making a point. I'm not trying a burden of works on you. I'm not trying to put a heavy load on you of things that you must do. The Lord Jesus is telling us over and over to prepare for his coming. He will return suddenly, and it will be irreversible. R.C. Sproul said this. He said, It is never unreasonable to believe God. Rather, it is unreasonable not to believe God. And with as many warnings as he's given us, I think we should perk our ears up and listen to what God is saying. So, friends, please take heart to what the Lord Jesus is saying here. Don't be caught slipping the way these five foolish virgins were. And when they realized they were ill prepared, they tried going out at that moment to purchase the oil. And what happened while they were gone? It says that the door was shut. It's my last point. In verses 10 through 13, the final payoff. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. J.C. Ryle, a, a favorite theologian of mine, said that true Christians, pay attention, true Christians shall alone be found ready at the second advent, washed in the blood of atonement, clothed in Christ's righteousness, renewed by the Spirit, they shall meet their Lord with boldness, and sit down at the marriage supper of the Lamb to go out no more. What are you doing to prepare for Christ's return, friends? Are you being proactive or not? A most dangerous thing for any Christian is to become lax, to become lazy in our Christian walk. But you see, the Lord knew how difficult it would be for us and he warned us over and over and he gave us things to help us along the way. Pilgrim, Christian, if you've been struggling, it's okay. I do too. We all do. And the Lord knew that we would struggle, so he gave us some beautiful things to be able to help us along the way. And those things are the means of grace. The instruments appointed by God by which the Holy Spirit uses to enable believers like us to receive Christ and all the benefits of his redemption. What are the means of grace? Namely, the preached word the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper and prayer. We know that these things can't happen alone, so we must be connected and committed to a local church for corporate worship, for service, and fellowship. Friends, the final payoff with Christ is determined by whether or not we're found in him or in our sins when he returns or calls us home. That's it. If he would have returned last night, where would he have found you? Would he have found you being about his business? Or would he have found you giving more attention to someone or something else? Would you be waiting and seeking the praise of others or waiting to meet our Savior? When we stand before God in judgment one day, because every single one of us, every single one of us will stand before God in judgment one day, and we're all going to hear one of two things I want to say. And the first is this out of Matthew twenty-five twenty-one well done good and faithful servant you have been faithful over a little i will set you over much enter into the joy of your master or matthew 7:23 i never knew you depart from me you workers of iniquity let me ask the question once again to help us reflect for a moment and examine our own hearts what will be your final payoff What will be your final payoff, and how do you know this? What does this mean for us as believers? Anybody got a competitive spirit in here? For the three of you that do, this is for you, okay? For the rest of you, pay attention. This challenge is for every single one of us, friends, okay? I want to challenge you with what we've read today and how we can practically apply this to our lives. Philippians 2.12 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling work out your salvation with fear and trembling and i have three ways i want to help us do this and the first is this can we just trust christ trust jesus i mean can we just trust him with our salvation and nothing else that doesn't even make sense right how are we going to trust him with just our salvation but not trust him with our marriage not trust him with our finances not trust him with our children not trust him with what's happening in the world where we freak out every time we turn on the news and think that's it he's coming back we're not dispensational we're reform folk whenever he comes he comes we're going to be okay because it's in his hands not ours let us trust christ we can trust him with the absolute and most important thing ever which is our salvation and that means if we can trust him with that we can trust him with everything else john 14 1 says let not your hearts be troubled believe in god believe also in me That's the Lord Jesus. Trust the promises of Christ. Trust the warnings of Christ. Trust the help that comes from Christ. Trust the the process that Christ gives us. Trust the word of God that tells us about Christ. And friends, trust the institution, the bride of Christ, the very one that he died for. Now, you might be thinking you trust the Word of God. You might be thinking, I'll trust the promises and warnings of God. But I'm not really sure about the process, and I don't know about the institution. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. Many of us have. But can I share something brutally honest with you? Do you know what God uses to help us heal from church hurt? The church. God uses the church to help heal us from church hurt. The church is not perfect, but it's what God uses for his people. The local church is what God uses to feed and to protect his sheep. The church is what God uses to mature our faith, to encourage, and to hold us accountable. And the process, you might not like it because there will be pain, there will be hardship, and there will be struggle. Often at the hands of loved ones or people we trust but God uses every last bit of it for his glory, for his honor, and for his praise. So if we trust Christ, let us live for him too. That's my second challenge. Trust Christ, live for Christ. To live for Christ means to die to ourselves, to carry our cross. To live for Christ means that we trust in his word, and if we trust his word, that means we must know his word, right? We can't trust in something that we don't know. Do you know what his word says and teaches, friends? The Apostle Paul said that, that it was his eager expectation and hope that he wouldn't be ashamed. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ would be honored in his body, whether by his life or by his death. Because for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. Have you heard that scripture before? To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's out of Philippians 1, 20 and 21. May we all live, may all we live, may all we say and do be for the praise, glory, and honor of the risen Christ. Amen? And that's only going to happen by staying active for Christ. That's the third part of the challenge. Stay active for Christ. Let's, let's trust in Christ, let's trust God's Word, and let's stay active for Christ. All too often, there are folks who are more concerned about having right and correct doctrine, but never really put it into action. And I think in the Reformed and Presbyterian world, we are so guilty of that. I think all of us collectively, we have been so guilty of that. We have a saying at our church that it's about head, heart, hands. What does that mean? It's not a preschool song. Head, heart, hands, okay? Our theology must go from our head to our heart to our hands. It must be put into action. Our theology must have feet as well. This is not a biology class, but our theology must also have feet, means it's got to be active. It's got to move and be active for Christ. If our theology is just fattening up our head, but we don't do nothing with it, then it's not theology, friends. It's just data. Because true theology, when it comes into the hearts, it can't help but go out to the hands and bless people and tell people about the risen Christ and call them to repentance of sin and to trust in the Lord Jesus. It must be active. Listen to what R.C. Sproul says about this. He says that all of God's laws given to us as principles by which we are to live have to be applied to real situations. One can profess to have faith in Jesus. One can profess to know about him. But if there's no fruit, then more than likely, in fact, that person may not be a believer. It's been said that the idea that a person can be justified and fail to show any fruits of sanctification is completely contrary to the teaching of Scripture. If we proclaim to be followers of Jesus, there must be visible fruit. We stay active for the Lord. James 2.26 says, faith apart from works is dead. The other night, I met with some guys. I have a theology class, don't laugh. I call it tacos and theology because first we feed on tacos, then we feed on theology. I'm taking these guys without even a diploma or a GED through Gerhardus Voss' Reformed Dogmatics. We have the dogmatics, the Bible, and a dictionary, right, to be able to get through this stuff because it's really, really heady. And we were talking about sanctification and true saving faith. You see, the act of regeneration is when God gives us a new heart. He gives us a heart inclined to him, instead of only evil. That's monergistic. That means that it only happens one way. It's, it's God doing the work. It means that God alone regenerates our hearts. When God saves us, it's him and it's him alone that does it. We do nothing. On the other hand, the process of sanctification, as we are being made more and more holy, that is synergistic. That means that it's a work of us and God together. We sin, we repent from our sins, and we try to do better. God saves us, but the act of sanctification, it's us and God working together. We must remain active in our walks with God, friends. Not to get saved, I want to make sure I make that very clear, but because we have been saved. And what should be our response to a holy God who has saved us from the wrath that surely awaits us for all those crimes committed against the holy God? I really don't think it's possible for somebody to hear the gospel, to truly understand it and get our hearts wrapped around what happened on the cross, the exchange that happened there, and to do nothing with it. To know that Christ lived a perfect life that we never could, to know that he was tempted in every way you and I were yet never sinned, to know that, that he voluntarily went to the cross, To suffer a most gruesome death that we deserve to pay for the sins of all those people who would ultimately place their faith in him to know that our crimes committed against the holy god have been paid for by jesus to know this and still remain lazy to know this and still remain slothful and flat out flippant or disobedient to what we've been called to do is to not understand the gospel at all and to have no faith in christ at all friends let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let us be mindful of the glorious work that Christ did for us, his people. Let us be mindful that we are both believers and unbelievers in the church at times. Let us be mindful that one day the Lord will return when we least expect it. And if we're not prepared, anything done then will be too little and too late. But as his chosen people, let us be cognizant of the final payoff which is an eternity in the presence of our Creator. To worship Him forever and ever. And because of that, let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Amen? Let's pray. Triune God, we, we thank You for the cross without which, without which we'd be utterly lost. We thank You for the gift of regenerating our hearts and the faith that You have placed there. Would You please strengthen us to always be mindful that that if we aren't planning for success with you, we're automatically planning for failure. Would you please help to remember, to have us remember to work out our salvation with fear and trembling by always trusting in you, by living for you, and staying active for you. Please let us think long and hard, as well as take action as to how we can be better prepared, Lord, and continue to prepare for your return, that we would be like the wise bridesmaids we read today, that were in fact prepared, you deserve our best and nothing less than that because you are worthy of our praise, our honor, and our glory. And Lord, we know that we cannot do this on ourselves. May you please strengthen us by way of your Holy Spirit that all we do would always be for you, but we know that when we fall, because we will, your grace will be sufficient for us. And all of God's people in one loud voice said, Amen, Amen.